Well, tonight I'm going to be reading James 3, verses 1 to 12. We're continuing a series on the book of James this evening. I think we're up to the fifth sermon or so. So James 3, verses 1 to 12. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. We're also going to read a little bit from the Heidelberg Catechism this evening. This is one of the documents that helps to define what we as a church believe. This evening we're going to read a question and answer that helps us understand one particular part of the Lord's Prayer. I'll read the question, then I ask that we all read the answer together. What does the first petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? For those of you who don't know, I have two young boys at home. One is three, and my other son is five. So we spend a lot of time at our house talking about cars and planes and ships. And one of the big obsessions at our house the last few months has been World War II ships. In fact, when I told my boys what I was going to talk about this evening, my older son David told me to tell everyone tonight that if you want to learn more about ships, talk to him after the service. So there's your invitation for later. But anyway, for now, at a certain point in World War II, the United States was sending dozens and hundreds of ships across the Atlantic Ocean to bring supplies to England. And the German Navy obviously didn't want this to happen, so they adopted all kinds of strategies to discourage those convoys and to sink the ships. And one of those strategies was to send out battleships and other large ships of war to attack and to sink these convoys. 
And the most famous of these ships was the Bismarck. I think we should have a picture of it so you can take a look at it on the screen. Though it's hard to get a sense of the scale of the thing from that picture. But it was one of the biggest battleships of its time. It was about as long as three football fields put together. And it had something like 2,000 crew members. So a big, big ship. So the day came that the Bismarck sailed out to sea for the first time. And its mission was to disrupt the supply line between America and England. And England had heard about this from a certain couple of spy networks, so they did everything they could to intercept the Bismarck. A couple days after the Bismarck set out to sea, two English battleships caught up with it. There was a big battle, but pretty quickly the Bismarck sank one of the English ships and horribly damaged the other. The Bismarck itself got a little bit of damage in that fight, so it decided to make a run for home for repairs. And as the Bismarck turned back toward a friendly, toward a friendly port, pretty much the whole English Navy in the Atlantic Ocean went after it. But they couldn't catch it. For days and days, English ships and planes looked and looked for the Bismarck. And they'd find it and they'd lose it. And they'd find it and fight a little, and then the Bismarck would get away again. The English threw everything they had out there, and it looked like the Bismarck was going to make it home. But finally, after days and days of this pursuit, one of the English aircraft carriers launched one final attack. It sent out 15 dated biplanes with one torpedo each. And most of those torpedoes, when they found the Bismarck, they missed. But one of them hit the Bismarck in the stern and damaged both its rudders. Now, the Bismarck's crew managed to repair one of the rudders, but the other rudder jammed sideways. Now, a ship with a rudder jammed sideways can't control where it goes. So the Bismarck, which was only a few hours from safety, was suddenly stuck in a long left turn, and it circled back around and headed straight for the English Navy that was coming after it. The crew did everything they could to make repairs, to fight off the advancing English ships, but it pretty quickly became clear that the fight was hopeless. Several English ships closed on the Bismarck. They hit it with hundreds of shells and several torpedoes. And in the end, the Bismarck, the mighty, mighty Bismarck, sank into the abyss of the sea. This was a ship that had sunk several other ships. and It had evaded a whole Navy's pursuit for days. But the minute that its rudder was damaged, it was doomed. Because that comparatively little piece of the ship got stuck crooked, the whole thing was lost. Just one crooked rudder steered that whole huge ship to destruction. And that's exactly what James is talking about in the first few verses of our text for tonight. A little bit in the mouth of a horse can turn the whole animal to an entirely different course, for better or worse. A great ship steered by huge winds, or these days by huge engines, goes wherever the rudder drives it. A huge forest can be laid low by just a small spark. A crooked tongue can wreck a whole person. An out-of-control tongue can even put someone on the course to hell, says James. Now, the particular word that James uses for hell there is Gehenna. And in the time of James, Gehenna was an actual place, a valley outside of Jerusalem. In fact, it was basically the garbage dump for the city. So people would bring their trash out to this valley, out to Gehenna, and they'd set it on fire and they'd leave it there. So this was a place that was always full of garbage and burning rubbish. 
Someone who doesn't have control of their tongue, says James, can so easily turn their lives into burning garbage. In a sense, James is not so concerned with the tongue itself as with the effects that a tongue gone wrong can have on the whole person. Someone who lies routinely almost always ends up getting caught in the web of their lies. Someone who's always bending the truth ends up losing the ability to recognize what's really true and what's not. Someone who gossips about others ends up with nasty stories being spread about themselves. Someone who verbally abuses others often ends up alone and lonely. The untamed tongue can corrupt a person, set the course of their life on fire, and in the end make their life just flaming rubbish, destined for the garbage dump of Gehenna. The untamed tongue does terrible things and is a terrible thing. And as we continue through our text, in verse 9, James goes from talking about the untamable tongue to talking about the double-tongued. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? I don't know if you caught it earlier, but the Bismarck actually had two rudders. And after the torpedo hit it, the sailors managed to repair one, but the other stayed jammed. And because of just that one broken rudder, the ship could only steer crooked. It didn't matter that one was pointed straight on toward where they wanted to go. The fact that the other rudder was jammed sideways set the whole course on a, helped set the whole ship on a course to destruction. So even if we use our tongue in the right way sometimes, even if our tongue sometimes points us in the right direction and sometimes doesn't, that's not good enough. If you mix fresh water and salt water, if you have a fresh water spring flow together with a salt water spring, all you end up with is salt water. A salt spring, a place that's bad at its very root, can't give out fresh water. It's just not possible. Bad speech corrupts good speech. And so says James, if we mix up praise of God with slandering people, the whole thing is still not right. We're still going to be headed in the wrong direction, still circling around toward our destruction. Now, one response to all of this would just be to say that we need to work harder. We need to tame our tongues. We need to get ourselves pointed in the right direction. We need to put out the fire. We need to make ourselves into freshwater springs. We need to purify our speech. Now, there's some truth to that, but the reality is that we can't do that on our own. James 3.8 tells us that we humans can't tame our tongues. What we say with our mouths comes out of our hearts, and our hearts aren't right. Our hearts have good and evil mixed together, and so everything that we say comes out mixed up. Even at its best, the human tongue left to itself is a pretty salty spring. Just like those sailors on the Bismarck, the point comes when we just have to recognize that we can't fix this thing. But the next move isn't to give up and despair. 
The prescription for dealing with the untamable, duplicitous tongue isn't just that we work harder, but it's not just that we give up either. The prescription for taming the tongue is to throw ourselves on God's grace. We need our Lord to change our hearts. We need our Lord to tame our tongues. We need our Lord to cure us of our double talk. Like the Heidelberg Catechism says, when we pray, hallowed be your name to our Lord, part of what we're doing is asking God to make us able to hollow his name. Part of that request is for the Lord to help us direct what we think, what we say, and what we do so that his name will always be honored and praised. When we set out to change our ways, when we set out to tame our tongue, the first words that we need to pay attention to are the words that we bring to our Lord in prayer. We need to begin not by working harder ourselves, but by going to our Lord and asking Him to help us direct our speech toward honoring and praising Him. Everything good in our lives begins with God working in us through the power of Christ on our behalf. But of course, as with many other things, God works in us, but we also need to get to work. As with all faith and works, God's work comes first, but God's work in us generates good works that we do. Only God can tame our tongues, but as he works in us, we become more and more able to generate true praise. It's not just that God comes to us and cleans out the junk and leaves us at neutral. God changes our hearts. He makes us new, and he makes us able to produce fresh water. God's work in our lives generates true worship and true good works. So we pray to God to clean up our tongues and to clean up our hearts. We pray that God teaches us to hollow his name, and then we set out to hollow God's name. One of the marks of our growth in Christ is that our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and our songs all serve more and more to glorify and to praise our Lord. One of the clearest instances of our tongues producing fresh water is when we come before the Lord our God and we bring our praises to Him. When we as believers gather to worship, our words and our songs of praise are a sign, a sign that God is at work in our lives, turning our tongues from evil and making us more and more able to reflect His goodness in our speech. God has more work to do in all of us, and all of us have more work to do for Him. But day by day, with each little course correction, with each little spark that gets put out in our lives, we're inching along the straight path toward our final destination. And each time we gather to praise our Lord like we are doing this evening, we can be encouraged and urged on toward the day when we will arrive safely at home. Day by day, we keep moving toward the time when we will finally be able to use our tongues only and always to praise our Lord and King.